0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: As you have been hearing on the news, we are expecting more details later today on border restrictions and the lifting of some of those. David Aiken, Global News Chief Political Correspondent, joins us now. David, good morning to you.
0: Morning, Jill. How are you doing?
1: Great. How about you?
0: Well, I'm... uh, I'm stuck in Canada like everybody else, and I'm kind of near a border, you're near a border, I'd kind of like to maybe get out of the country just for a little bit, you know, see what it feels like. But uh, it's not going to happen anytime soon, I don't think.
1: So what do we expect to hear today?
0: Well, we're going to hear, uh, and it's really going to be uh, in about an hour, hour and a bit uh, from the minister, Uh, we're going to get some timelines on when and how the border is going to start to open. It's not going to be all at once. It's going to be sort of a phase one, phase two approach we do know that the land border with the united states the restrictions currently in place there they're going to remain there at least until july the 21st and of course uh, all non-essential travel is uh, is discouraged or forbidden it's just essential travelers that are able to cross the land border right now and that's going to be in place till july 21st one of the things that the federal government has been watching as it uh, makes decisions about when to open that border is vaccination rates on both sides of the border and uh, as we've seen in the united states they They were out of the gun pretty quick, uh, better than Canada, but their vaccination rates have sort of plateaued. And now there's campaigns you've seen to get people uh, vaccinated in the States. Here in Canada, we continue to show good progress on first dose of vaccinations. Uh, we're a little bit behind on fully vaccinated. Um, so we'll see where those those uh, that data is uh, about the middle of next month. But right now, the U.S.-Canada uh, border, uh, restrictions are going to stay in place until July 21st.
1: Is there any indication that one country could move without the other? Or are you hearing that it will be an announcement from both Canada and the U.S., something that they've agreed upon?
0: Uh, both countries can do whatever they want. I mean, uh, every country is sovereign about its own borders, and certainly the UK has its own rules, and France and the EU, and, uh, but, uh, the, the US, of course, is accepting Canadians, uh, right now. It's just Canada when, for those Canadians coming back, uh, there is a quarantine process in place. What we expect, uh, Canada, that said, Canada is, of course, working with the United States, you know, to harmonize things. Um, and I think what we will see is, and and what some negotiations have been happening is, um, a different level of restriction for fully vaccinated individuals. So those who have had both Pfizer doses, or you've had one Johnson & Johnson. Uh, uh, Those individuals are going to be able to move more freely, both at a land border, also coming in via flights. We are expected to hear Minister Blair talk about when those restrictions will ease. The government has said that at some point this summer, uh, there will be uh, no quarantine for those who test negative, and have been fully vaccinated when they arrive in Canada. So we'll look to see uh, when that happens. One of the issues that on the cross-border thing to work out with the United States is, uh, we know in the United States, the AstraZeneca vaccine is not approved. It's not an, um, an FDA-approved vaccine. It is an approved vaccine by Canada. It's been approved by the World Health Organization. So we just want to make sure that if you've got the AstraZeneca in your body, can you get into the States? I think there is some expectations that, yes, that that will be fine uh, for the United States. We saw something last week you may have heard. You know, Bruce Springsteen's playing some shows in uh, New York City, and the promoters are saying you can't come unless you've got a FDA-approved vaccine. So Springsteen fans with the AstraZeneca were getting shut out. So those are important issues that both both uh, both countries have to work out, and that work is going to continue.
1: And just about a minute left. Do you think it will increase? Will part of the announcement be more testing?
0: Uh, th- that is something we're going to have to ask the minister. I think that's going to be crucial. That's really important for kids, because don't forget, there is no approved vaccine uh in canada for kids 12 and under so there's no vaccine kids you know eight nine have not had a vaccine so if they're going to travel and they can kids can get the virus they can transmit it there has to be some testing then particularly if mom and dad are fully vaccinated and they've got kids i mean how is that going to work so those are some of the things we'll be asking minister blair about uh as i say in about an hour's time
1: all right we will be listening and waiting for that update david aiken thanks so much for your time this morning
0: Great. Thanks, Jill. Cheers.
1: David Aiken, Global News Chief Political Correspondent. And again, we will get those updates. The announcement of the lifting of some border restrictions, that's when we're talking about fully vaccinated Canadians. We're sitting at about 20% right now of the Canadian population that is able to get vaccinated. About 20% of Canadians have had their uh, two shots, about 75% with the one shot. So again, that announcement coming a bit later this morning.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. We're going to talk more now about the cancellation of some Canada Day celebrations. Kelowna and Penticton both announcing the celebrations in those cities will not be taking place this year. And joining me on the line is the Mayor of Penticton, John Vasilaki. Mayor of Vasilaki, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much, and good morning to everyone. What was behind the decision, or what is behind the decision, to cancel the Canada Day festivities this year in Penticton?
2: Um, Well, we had a a nice long talk with uh, uh, Chief Gabriel at the City of... uh, uh, I'm sorry for the Penticton Indian Band, um, and he was quite concerned about what happened uh, in Camp Roops and so we Penticton uh, citizens... Uh, we're quite concerned, um, and, you know, we have to start thinking uh, of the, of our indigenous people at, and what happened to them in the past, um, and uh, we have to show uh, our condolences for them and uh, respect uh, their traditional uh, way of life and what... Uh, we have done to them over the past 150 years. Uh, so we thought it was about time we started showing some respect and reconciliation uh, to the Penticton Indian Band as well as all the other uh, First Nations, um, not only in British Columbia, but uh, right across Canada.
1: So, will they be canceled for forever as far as Canada Day celebrations?
2: No, I I don't believe so. It'll probably be for uh, just for this year, but we'll play it by ear and and see from what happens between now and and next uh, uh, July the first. I don't believe that the uh, um, Penticton Indian Band would want us to forget um, our National Day, which is Canada. and uh, and respecting our Canadian ways, just like we should respect the First Nations way of life. Uh, so I don't believe it will be forever.
1: Was part of the reason as well, and I mentioned Kelowna has also cancelled activities in a statement, Festivals Kelowna, talking about the fact with the guidance as far as gatherings and having people in an area, even if it's outdoors, concerned about the crowds being too large in Penticton. Was that part of the reasoning as well, given the COVID-19 restrictions?
2: Absolutely, that was one of the reasons. But the main reason was uh, respect for uh, the Penticton Indian Band, uh, and as well as the rest of the indigenous people, uh, in our country. Uh, we are, we are, uh, very close with the Penticton Indian Band. We continue to have council to council meetings, um, uh, quite regularly. Um, and, uh, I'm personally a friend of, uh, of, our, uh, Chief Gabriel, um, at the Penticton Indian Band. So it, it's, it's, we, we have to start, uh, respecting uh, all people in this country, not just the, the indigenous peoples, but all the, the immigrants that come to this country, whether uh, they are um, uh, white or any, any, uh, any color or religion. Uh, I'm an immigrant myself, and I, I, and I understand how uh, people feel um, when they're a little bit different than, uh, than we are. Uh, you know, so we have to show respect and um, in, in in place of the uh, the of reconciliation and respect uh,
1: given the timing of the discovery of the unmarked burial site at the former Kamloops residential school uh, and given what's happened there and like you said the talk of reconciliation I think people understand that it probably it, it's it makes sense not to have a big party not to have people coming out and celebrating. But are you anticipating any pushback from people, uh, say, you mentioned immigrants, people who have made Canada their home and and want to celebrate that and want to celebrate the wonderful things about this country? Not saying that you're doing one rather than the other, but is there room to do both?
2: Um, Absolutely, Uh absolutely. so far, we've announced it uh, late last week that uh, we were going to be cancelling. And, and, you know, I've, I've never heard, I haven't heard a word concerning this matter that they are against our decision uh, of cancelling it. You know, most people understand uh, about this, this kind of things and how we have to, uh, to show that we care. Um, and because they had problems in, in their own countries, and m- in most cases, that's why they left their own homeland uh, to come to our country. Uh, they wanted to find a better life uh, that they couldn't have uh, in in their own. So, um, you know, it's it's they understand and they respect and they know where uh, where we're coming from. So, uh, I just hope there isn't going to be any so far. Um, I haven't heard anything, and you know, if people are unhappy uh, about anything, the first person they call is a mayor, and and we, I personally haven't heard anything, whether it's on, uh, by email or by telephone call concerning this matter.
1: You, you mentioned, too, that you've been talking with Chief Gabriel with the Penticton Band. What do you think would be good, what should people do, uh, rather than... Uh, not celebrate Canada Day, there won't be the organized celebrations, but when you talk about showing respect and reconciliation, is there guidance on what maybe suggestions what people could do or what does that look like?
2: Um, you know, I just want people to uh, to understand uh, how the, the, uh, the First Nations feel about their past and to understand and respect uh, their thoughts. You know, this morning at 9 o'clock we're having a gathering um, at um, uh, at the park right next door to City Hall, uh, where the Benedict Indian Band is going to put on uh, their traditional uh, things that they do uh, when things like this happen. And they're going to have speeches and uh, all those things. And that's how we learn uh, how to to live uh, with each other and respect our our traditions, just like those that have moved to Canada uh, how they keep their traditions and we should respect uh th- those the lives that they lead and uh, and and all those kinds of things so that's what I want our public to do is to uh, remember uh the, the traditions of the native people um not only of Penticton British Columbia but uh right across Canada to to respect their way of life and and how they think and Uh, and what happened to them in the past and how we should be trying, uh, like I said earlier, to to reconciliate with uh, with them and to make sure that from here on we live a live better lives and not ever happen what happened in the last 150 years to to the uh, native people of this country.
1: All right. Uh, Mayor Vasilaki, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having
0: me. Have a wonderful
1: day. You too. John Vasilaki is the mayor of Penticton.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, Delta Police have been busy after a recent spike in the number of catalytic converter thefts. Seven thefts in just one day earlier this month. Joining me now is Chris Lakoff, Public Affairs Manager with Delta Police. Chris, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Thank you. So this is um, seems like there's been an increase. How strange is it that you would see seven of these thefts in one day?
3: It's definitely a spike, but unfortunately, this has been an issue that's continued to plague not only Delta, but uh, residents and businesses across the region during the last few months. And it has to do uh, with the salvage price of the metal that's uh, contained within the um, exhaust emission control uh, device, the catalytic converters.
1: Are certain vehicles being targeted more than others? I'd say
3: your larger vehicles such as RVs, um, uh, commercial vehicles, also uh, SUVs and trucks, anything that thieves can easily slide under and uh, then uh, quickly saw off the catalytic converter. Uh,
1: one of the incidents, uh, because people might be quite looking at this and thinking, okay, it's happening in the dark of night. People are targeting mm-hmm. maybe vehicles parked on on deserted streets. Somebody at the mall in Tawasin in the middle of the day? Yes, that's right.
3: It was quite a brazen theft. Uh, in that case, the vehicle owner actually uh, interrupted the theft uh, in progress. He noticed a, a suspicious-looking man who was holding a battery-operated sawzall standing next to his truck. And uh, the the individual with the sawzall realized he was being watched, actually went under the truck, sliced the bottom of the fuel tank, causing a leak, uh, which then uh, had to, of course, immediately be cleaned up. Uh, police officers, firefighters, and the vehicle owner uh, were able to capture about half the fuel and um, stop the other fuel from reaching storm drains,
1: fortunately. Wow, but the suspect uh, took off, so that person is still yeah. out there? Yes, that's correct. Do you think, that is it the same person doing all of this, or do we have bands of catalytic converter thieves? Unfortunately, it
3: is uh, more than one individual who is committing these thefts and sometimes they will target uh different areas um around the region they might hit two or three vehicles in one area uh within a, an hour period even uh it's it's something that we're hoping to um pursue a regional approach to address this issue there are no scrap metal yards in in delta so um uh, we do know that a regional approach is needed
1: So when somebody shows up at a scrap metal yard where they are located, isn't that a bit of a red flag? Or I mean, it's not like somebody just happened to saw off their own catalytic converter and bring it in. Could we not catch whoever it is that's uh, selling them and the people buying them?
3: Yeah, it's a bit of a complicated issue uh, and it will require, um, a, a, coordinated approach, uh, to address it. Uh, we'll need, of course, the cooperation of, um, the, the metal yards in here, uh, municipalities across the region. It, it's, we understand how frustrating it is for businesses and, uh, for residences, residents, residents, uh, because it, this can be quite an expensive theft to deal with. Uh, you know, you're looking at the replacement of this. And in some cases, actually, now we're aware that individuals are purchasing these sliced-off
1: catalytic converters potentially for resale. What can people do then to try and make it so their vehicle's not a target? Mm -hmm. Uh,
3: Well, one of the top things uh, we recommend is actually parking
1: your vehicle in a garage. Uh, so
3: it's a good excuse to clean out your garage, uh, or a well-lit area. If you're parking uh, in a parking lot, uh, we recommend a secured lot with a security guard and uh, within view of any security cameras, and, of course, reporting any suspicious activity. We also recommend that commercial fleet vehicle operators and owners of RVs and large trucks actually have their catalytic converters etched uh, with the license plate.
1: All right. So, Good advice. Hopefully, police will get the upper hand on this and we will see that regional approach to cut down on these thefts. We'll leave it there. Chris Lakoff, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. Well, today is National Indigenous Peoples Day. You've likely been hearing that on the news. Many people asking for some reflection, not celebration this year, given what we now know about the Kamloops Residential School, the discovery near that school, and the call for much more investigation. Just one of the things we're asked to talk about to reflect on today. Joining me now is Howard E. Grant, who is a Counselor for the Musqueam Indian Band. Thank you so much for being with us.
4: Uh, Thank you very much, Hill.
1: What would you like to see people do as far as that reflection or spending some time on this National Indigenous Peoples' Day?
4: (laughs) That's a a really good question, but a a difficult one to answer in, in the sense that, you know, on one side, on my side of the table, That reflection is a memory of all of the ones that we've lost, you know, family, friends and relatives and whatnot that uh, have, uh, over the many, many years, not just lost their lives in residential school, but uh, post-residential school as well, that uh, committed suicide and uh, were taken down the wrong path. And, uh, uh... had a uh, no sense of, of uh, direction and and uh, and um, I guess uh, sense of hope. So you look at that side, and on the other side of the coin, that uh, the society itself to say, do we reflect or do we or do we or we do we take action? And that action being to say, wow, I didn't know this, you know. Uh, I heard people talk about it. I, I was ignorant to all of this, and how can I, how can I, clearly understand so that I can become educated and to not only to reflect, but to ensure that it never ever happens again, and that we take a corrective action to all of this.
1: It's interesting the word "action" as well when we're talking about this because it seems like there has been talk plenty of talk we talk even looking at the, the recommendations from the truth and reconciliation commission plenty of talk about that but it doesn't seem like there has been a ton of action do you think that will change
4: well if we look at the track record of uh, both of the crown uh, governments federal and provincial those are clearly examples that um have shown that um, no action have, has taken place. A lot of words, a lot of apologies. And um, action is, is something that you develop and um, implement. But the sad reality is part of the action is to remove all of the old pieces of policies and legislation. And you don't hear any of the ministers speaking of them. And then putting it into a department like... Uh, uh, indigenous affairs or, or whatnot is is not the right place. It has to have clear oversight right out of the prime minister's office and right out of the premier's office. That way, then all ministries become responsible, as opposed to just one one ministry.
1: We have heard some promises on a provincial level, the provincial government uh, pledging uh, to go forward with the Indigenous Peoples in BC Act and changing it, or the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act, uh, realigning provincial law, realigning that policy. Is that a lot of talk as well, or do you think something like that, if passed, could that actually make some real changes?
4: Well, action... uh... The province has described that uh, they've made progress over the last couple of years since Dripa uh, has been passed in, in in their legislature, but real action has not taken place. They have not removed old policies and old pieces of legislation, and when they start to develop new ones, always they're uh, they're put up against the old policy to say are they are they consistent and and. Uh, do they not harm and then replace or, or damage the old policy, the old legislation? So therefore the first line of action should have been and could have been to remove, to, to, to put together a, a SWAT team to look at all pieces of policy and legislation and say, which ones are offensive and which ones are, should not have been in place because they were never, uh, first nations were never taken into account when they were being developed. So Uh, They have to be removed first and foremost. Then you move on to develop those new policies in a more cohesive and co-development manner.
1: And how much of it is policy and government, and how much as well is what we see and do in our lives day to day? And and I'm thinking about there are... uh, Uh, vigils planned. There are memorials that have taken place since the discovery at the Kamloops School, the former residential school site. Uh, uh, People talking about the fact that it it shouldn't come as a shock. I mean, it's beyond description, horrible, but shouldn't come as a shock, given the history of BC. How much is it, how much depends on people changing how we have that conversation or changing what we do day to day, as opposed to government policy?
4: Well, as I said earlier, that um, education is the most important tool. You know, you have to learn about what it is that you did wrong. You know, um, a lot of people say, that's not me. That was, I wasn't born. I wasn't there. uh, I'm new to this country. And uh, therefore, I was not part of it. But it continues in the sense that it's a domino effect over time. So therefore... You have to look at educate, becoming educated. And then right now you have a young uh, bureaucratic structure. They, all of the old guard has been removed, but new ones have replaced them. And they too have been indoctrinated into the current policy level. So how do you educate those individuals to to now move outside of that narrow and on, on small box? So, And uh, cross-cultural training one day a year is not going to do it. It has to be something more. Canada likes to believe that they have a real strong social conscience. You know, uh, you, you can define it as magnanimous, uh, the, the, how the crown feels, that, um, that they, they said they're sorry and, then, and whatnot, but that, that, that's not there. It, it's uh, how, do we, how, do we, how do we ensure that you become so aware so that it never, ever happens again?
1: Uh, You're absolutely right. And even looking at at something like today being National Indigenous Peoples Day, I would guess that a lot of people wouldn't know that this is a day, I think this is the 25th anniversary of National Indigenous Peoples Day, and people likely, for the most part, wouldn't be aware of that.
4: Absolutely. You know, in my home community, uh, we celebrated over the last 25 years National Aboriginal Day. Uh, we held uh, a welcoming festival for our, our leasehold neighbors uh, that we call family. And uh, we have uh, approximately, oh, I'll say, 350 to 400 residential homes. And uh, <laughs> it's sad to say that I would say that less than 5% attend our activities and don't participate with us. You know? hmm. and and it, And that's just a reflection in regards to uh, the city of Vancouver, uh, across Canada. Uh, and it's, it's, it's something that um, is, is there, but it's not a national holiday. It's, it's, a, it's a, a day that we celebrate and that we want to, to say to the uneducated and to the, um, the uh, non-Indigenous population that um, we're here. You know, we're no longer in the museums.
1: All right. Well, Howard, uh, we're right out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. But I do appreciate so much you coming on the program this morning. Thank you so much for your time today.
4: And thank you. It, uh, it's well. It is. It is now an awakening. Unfortunately, that uh, it uh, took the 215. But um, again, it, uh, we just we can't afford to let it die. We have to continue on things. So thank you.
1: All right, that is Howard E. Grant, counselor for the Musqueam Indian Band. And my thanks again to Howard for joining us on the program.
0: This is Mornings with Simi. All
1: right, we're going to talk a little bit about the Skilled Trades Certification Program in BC, what it's going to look like, and joining me to chat about that is Andrew Mercier, Parliamentary Secretary for Skills Training. Good morning to you. Good morning, how are you? I'm very well, how about you? Uh,
5: I'm a Habs fan, so I've had better days.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, that's a whole other topic right there. But uh, good on you for still being able to join the program and talk more about this this (laughs) morning. Uh, We talked a bit when this was first announced. What exactly will this do? How is this going to have an impact on the various trades in B.C.?
5: Well, so what we're doing is we've, uh, we're unrolling a requirement for 10, 10 trades to have uh, skilled trade certification. So what that means is if you work in one of these 10 trades and you're on a job site, you will either need to be a registered apprentice or journey person with the industry training authority. And so the three groupings of trades are four mechanical, three electrical, and three automotive. And why we're doing this is because this province is facing a skilled trade shortage. In the next 10 years, we stand to have 73,000 people or 73,000 job openings in the skilled trades. 55,800 of which are going to be created by um retirements in the construction sector. So what we want to make sure that we're doing is uh, increasing the prestige and value of the trades, getting folks into apprenticeships, recognizing the skills that they have. And building out the workforce so that we can face the problems uh, of you know the economy today but also 10 years from now
1: what about the issue that's been raised about the lack of training spaces and some in the industries saying that you need the the spaces that you can't become an apprentice if you're on a one year or a year and a half wait list to get into a program
5: yeah that's a good question i'd say a few different things about that so the first is uh, that um we have selected these trades with an eye to an impact on the training system. So the, you know, from, from our view and from all of the analysis that we've done, and we've got a business case posted on our website, the impacts on uh, spaces uh, is going to be negligible for these 10 trades. Now, that being said, we are about to do a robust, in- go through a robust engagement process that folks listening, tradespeople, employers, uh, can go to our website, engage.gov.bc.ca backslash skill trades uh, and sign up for, sign up for a roundtable or fill out a survey um, because we want to hear from you about this. But one, one key point I want to make here is that not everyone in the industry in these trades who's uncertified will need to go back and do an apprenticeship. We have a robust challenge system Uh, And we want to make sure that we have the supports in place for workers and employers during this transition. So I'd really encourage folks to uh, go to the website and sign up for engagement. Uh,
1: Isn't that something that should have been done before the announcement or before this program was put out there?
5: Well, so what we've done is we had an 18-month stakeholder engagement process to select the 10 trades that we're going to be looking at. Um, and we've we've gone through that. We've gone through that process. We took folks from across industry, from a whole variety of different viewpoints, sat them down and looked at the trades that this makes the most sense for. But what I'd like to say is we're at the beginning of a process right now, not at the end of it. So we've got about uh, two years until implementation and there'll be another year grace period before we go into compliance for this. So, so we're really at the beginning of the process. And this is the time where we wanna hear from folks who are on the ground, who are working on the tools, who are listening to this right now at the job site. We want to hear from you about what we can do to make sure that you have the supports you need for this to be successful. Uh,
1: So what would that look like when you said that there's a robust process as far as challenging, that not everybody who's already working that isn't ticketed, not everybody will have to go back into this program. What will that look like?
5: Yeah, so so I'll say a few things. So we do have a robust challenge system, you know, currently, where if you have the skills, if you're working on the job and you don't have a ticket for a whole variety of reasons, uh, but you have the skills, you're able to apply for the industry training authority to um, to do a challenge exam. Now, that being said, we're aware that there's people in a whole bunch of different circumstances right now uh, you know, there are folks that are, you know, maybe looking down the lens at retirement. There are new Canadians that have different types of backgrounds. And what we want to do is make sure that we speak to folks to make sure that they have the supports they need uh, so that we can transition effectively um, into this. Because there is a real advantage for acquiring skilled trade certification. There's a reason that nine out of ten provinces in Canada have it. And that's that it encourages more folks into apprenticeships um, and encourages more young people uh, into the trade. But that being said, in terms of issues of transition, we've got the ability to be flexible, and we want to talk to people on the ground about what that looks like.
1: But we've been hearing from people on the ground, and again, going back to the issue of training spaces, saying that there is a lack of training spaces. So why doesn't this include increasing the number of training spaces as well?
5: Well, so, so right now we're talking about the requirement for the, uh, for the certification Our training spaces are at a utilization rate of about 90% across the province. Now, the 10 trades that we've selected are a microcosm of the trades training system. We're not doing all the trades. There's 97 trades in British Columbia that are regulated by the Industry Training Authority. We're looking at 10. And, you know, currently our analysis is that we have the capacity within the training system to accommodate the increased registrations from these trades. Now, that being said, like I said before, we're at the beginning of the process uh, we're we 're out there looking at what kind of supports folks need um, and we 've got the ability to be flexible uh to be flexible with the, with that but right now we 're at the beginning.
1: Uh, Is there an issue as well with the pandemic? And I know that a lot of the trades continued, certainly construction continued at a very good pace throughout this pandemic. But when we're talking about restarting the economy and getting people into these positions and really jump-starting things, should we be bringing in more levels of bureaucracy or trying to make it easier?
5: Well, we need to make it easier. And one of the ways we make it easier is we make sure that people have a skilled trades workforce that they need. Uh, in order to get the job done and you know the last government uh removed the requirement for skilled trade certification shut down uh, the old itac the industry training and apprenticeship commission uh, and laid off all the apprentice advisors we're re- we're building that out we're looking at we're looking at restoring these requirements bringing uh value and prestige back to the trades um through skilled trade certification and through these requirements to make sure that folks have the workers that they need. I mean, the, at the end of the day, the goal here is red seals, not red tape. So if you're an employer or you're a contractor of anyone in these trades, in the, uh, you know, mechanical gas fitter, steam fitter, pipe fitter, refrigeration, air conditioning mechanic, sheet metal worker, electrical workers, or in the automotive sector, we want to hear from you. And we want to hear from you about what supports we can create to help make this a success,
1: uh, so, and what was the decision process, or why were only ten of the ninety-seven trades uh, decided chosen to be part of this?
5: So, we had a, uh, a robust stakeholder process that lasted about eighteen months and went throughout the pandemic as well. It started before that with uh, sixteen industry organizations from across the province, and they sat down and they had the hard conversations and a difficult look at the at all of the different. Different trades to look at what would benefit, which trades would benefit the most from this program, and they looked at labor market need, they looked at the importance to, uh, to economic development in this uh, in this province, and they also looked at looming shortages in those workforces to determine uh, what the ten initial trades will be. Now, that being said, once these trades are implemented, uh, we will be introducing a process for industry to come to the table and to request uh, certification of additional trades where it makes sense.
1: All right. Well, we'll leave it there for today. Andrew Mercier, thanks so much for joining us, for bringing us up to speed on this. Thanks a lot,
4: and go Habs go.
1: All right. That is Andrew Mercier, Parliamentary Secretary for Skills Training here in BC.